Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable of the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Imagine all the elbows uh, in the crowd right now. He gives an illustration. If you are offering a gift at the altar, and we just had an offering, and if you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Last, your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and they put you in prison. Surely I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. These are the commandments. But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body goes to hell. Finally, verse 31. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. You have heard that said. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except, this is the only out clause, on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Oh, brother. <laughs> um, Do you ever read your Bible and you're reading in the Gospels and you read something Jesus said and you thought, my gosh, that's hard. Like, this is difficult. Like, like this isn't the Jesus we sing about and talk about. This is, this is really, really hard. Anybody but me ever think that? Uh, you should have been thinking it right now, right? Like, pluck your eye out if it causes you to sin. Uh, Jesus said some other things that always boggle my mind. Like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, and that was a sewing needle, than for a rich man to make it to heaven. Now, when I was poor and broke, that was a cool scripture. Now that I got a little bit of money, I'm worried, right? You read that? That's hard. Uh, and you'll see many times in the Gospels, the disciples will say, man, that's a hard saying. Uh, when Jesus talks about divorce here in Matthew 19, and he goes through all this in the beginning, God made the male and female, it wasn't so. What God has put together, let no man tear apart. The question that they have is, should anybody even get married? This is really difficult. What about hating your father and mother if you want to be my disciple? So we read these words of Jesus and they can be confusing. Now, picture yourself in the crowd. Jesus is going through the Beatitudes. This sermon is really, really good. Uh, then he gets to this part. Cut your arm off. You know, it's better that you get mutilated and go to heaven than have all your parts in hell. People are thinking, my gosh. Uh, they're thinking the Ten Commandments. You know, first it was murder and adultery, now it's anger and lust. And they're probably there with slumped shoulders, right? Then Jesus says something remarkable, verse 17 to 20. He said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get into the kingdom. Now the rabbis had a saying, if there were only two seats in heaven, if only two people that ever lived went to heaven, one would be a scribe, one would be a Pharisee. And Jesus said, you got to be better than them. It's like telling a Catholic, you got to be better than every cardinal and every bishop or you're never getting to heaven. And you know what the average person's thinking? 
I can't do this. And that's the point. I can't do this. That's the point. Do you ever wonder why they sacrificed animals? And by the way, if you ever share with a Jewish person, ask them, where's the atonement for their sin now? You see, when Moses gave not only the Ten Commandments, there were 631 commandments in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. They knew they couldn't keep it. That's why there was a sacrificial system. That's why the smoke rose early in the morning and late in the afternoon. It was a sign you could not do this. My wife and I got into what I would call a Bible cult two years after we became Christians. I was out on the main line, uh, met at like 9 o'clock, and you walk in, all these people were prostrate on the floor, praying, and then this guy would come out screaming. That is always, your spidey senses should go up when somebody has to scream. Because this says Jesus sat down and taught. So when somebody's screaming, something's up, right? This guy's screaming, almost like, and you're, you're just thinking, oh my gosh, this is hard. And of course, you know, he had this hot wife, right? And I remember going to the bathroom and looking out of his mainline home and I saw a pool and I thought, all these guys that are legalistic, they always get the hot wife and a pool before they preach legalism, right? And I remember days would go by and I thought, I can't do this. And the Holy Spirit, as clear as a bell, said, you're right, you can't do this. Legalism has failed at the only thing it's ever tried to do, make people holy. Religions fail at the only thing it's ever tried to do is bring people into a relationship with God. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants you, the crowd, to trade in relations, re religion for a relationship with Almighty God. What a travesty that people would read the Sermon on the Mount like you and I just did and take away literally what Jesus is saying and miss the entire point. When Jesus is here speaking these things, I want you to think of an encounter he had with a man that remains nameless because you can plug any woman or any man's name in. His name's the rich young ruler. That's all you need to know about this guy. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. He had used his talents wisely. He had made a lot of money. He made wise choices in life. Nothing wrong with that. He was young. That meant, you know, the fortune he had amassed, he could spend it. That's, that's wonderful. And he was a ruler. He had leadership. There were people under him. He could bless those people. But he comes to Jesus one day, and I'm sure he came in private, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he wasn't asking how you get to heaven. Uh, eternal life, the, the Jewish mind was began in the here and now. What he was asking was, how do I live the good life? How do I live a life pleasing to God? Now, his question brings out two things. Number one, something was missing in his life. Uh, which brings us to 2021. Hopefully you know by now, and if you're young, uh, hopefully this will convince you, money, power, and fame will not make you supremely happy. If it would, every celebrity, every rock star, every athlete uh, would be living the grand life. No antidepressants, no suicide. We know that's not true. So he opens the door to that idea. There's some kind of lack in his life. Now, Jesus' response, listen, Jesus' response is... Have you kept the commandments? Now that's interesting. Because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard of all, now I tell you. And we think, commandments bad, Jews bad, Old Testament bad, everything Jesus says is good. And Jesus says, no. If you want to live the good life, have you kept the commandments? And his answer, his self, and Jesus is all about self-diagnosis. His self-diagnosis is, um, kept them all. From my youth, kept them all. Now, I'm thinking, 
My gosh. Like when I used to go to confession in the Catholic Church, even if I hadn't murdered or committed adultery, I would at least make something up to tell the priest, right? Like I'm not walking in there like, geez, I've kept all this from my youth, right? Do you ever go up to someone and they'll say, yeah, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. And what's the first thing they tell you? I never murdered anyone, never committed adultery, right? And Jesus goes through the commandments, right? And he says, oh, no, 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 all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus said, oh, you know what? There's one, there's one blockage in your heart, one blockage in your spiritual artery. And you can solve it by selling everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. You can become my 13th disciple. Now, this is the only guy Jesus ever said, sell everything. So no, that's not what you need to do. And instead, the man went away sad because he had many possessions. My point that I'm trying to make here is, is that the law, had it been bad, Jesus would have never told him to keep the law. When you go back to Deuteronomy, which means second, Deutero, law, Ronomy, second law, it, it's Moses preaching a series of sermons at the end of his life. And remember what Moses said in Deuteronomy? By the way, Jesus loved Deuteronomy. He quoted it against the devil in the wilderness, and, he, and it's all through the Sermon on the Mount. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, with every, right? So, so we're looking at law, but the word love is all through Deuteronomy. It's interesting. Uh, the psalmist, it says, who meditates and the law of the Lord is his delight, is like a tree planted by the rivers of water he brings forth in every season. Wow. David said in the Psalms, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statues of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. There's nothing wrong with law. We live under the rule of law. You know, I'm glad there's road signs. I might not follow them all, but I'm glad they're there. I'm glad you can't steal and murder. You know, I'm glad that you and I live under the rule of law. Psalm 119, the largest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses about God's word and the law, 25 times mentions the law, and the overriding theme is the law is our delight. We delight in the law. Now, Paul had the greatest revelation concerning the law, and he was a rabbi. Paul was a very learned man, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He said, it was my schoolmaster to bring me to Christ. The law showed me that I was imperfect in all my zeal, and then I needed something outside of the law, that, that there was a greater dynamic, the love of God. So Jesus here teaching the crowds. And do you ever wonder why crowds follow Jesus? Now, it's easy to say he healed everybody. I get that. He fed the 5,000. It says that the crowds follow Jesus because he taught, unlike the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, he taught with authority. What does that mean? I think it means two things. I think, one, it sounded like he had been there on the other side, and he had. But Jesus had the unique ability to take the word of God and bring it down to reality. Look, I love to sit around and talk about theology. I'll talk about angels, demons, hell, the Nephilim. I'll nerd out with you. I love talking about the Bible. But at the end of the day, we got to get up on Monday morning. And we got to raise kids and send them to college, and we got to work, and we got to deal with people. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount plunges headfirst into 2021 reality. Talks about anger, contempt, hatred, lust. These are the things we deal with in life. Divorce, verbal manipulation, revenge, cursing. You know, 
This is front page Wall Street Journal, New York Times. This is the human condition. And when we come out the other side of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to understand exactly what our kingdom looks like. The kingdom of God is here. Now, I want to deal with this phrase, you have heard of old, and now I tell you. Uh, you have heard of old can mean two things. It can mean you have heard, like in the Bible, uh, probably what Jesus meant, because, again, nobody had Bibles. You have heard the interpretation of these things. So there was the Mishnah, the Talmud, there were the commentaries by the rabbis, and so they had beliefs about all these different things. And so the people that day had heard many interpretations, and it was very religious. So quickly, let's go through these three, and let's see what the heart of the matter is. You have heard it said of old, you shall not commit murder, but now if you're angry with your brother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? Um, there's this debate. I don't know what your Bible says. Most Bibles have taken this phrase out without a cause, okay? So we're not sure if that was in the original. Did commentators insert it? Don't worry about any of that. You ready for this? It doesn't matter because it's implied. Anger is an emotion. Anger is given by God. Let me tell you something about emotions. Um, God doesn't have emotions, by the way. When the Bible says God is joyful or sad, it's from our perspective to understand how he is. Only human beings have emotions. Here's how they work. Um, they're, they're like the light on your car oil. Isn't that a terrible thing to see? My gosh, the engine gonna fall out? Like, it used to be called an idiot light before computers. Like, you dummy, you should have changed your oil. Like, the engine is going to fall out, right? Emotions are like the idiot light. It's telling you something's going on. Now, we don't live by emotions. They can't be trusted. They are necessary. So let's talk about anger. Jesus was angry. He overturned the tables of the money changers, right? They made his father's house a house of prayer and the house of merchandise. Moses threw the tablets of stone down. Now, we're told to be angry and not sin. Moses did something else. The people wanted water. God told him to strike the rock. He struck the rock twice, and because of that, never, never made it in the kingdom. And you think, my gosh, for the guy that did all that, God's going to like condemn him for one thing? God said, no, you messed with a type. You told the people, I was angry. Mm. So anger is a good thing. However... What Jesus is trying to bring out is that for somebody already in the kingdom, the poor of spirit, those who mourn over their condition, that relationships, healthy relationships, are at a paramount if you and I are going to live holistic lives. Paramount. Uh, we, we preach a lot about community here, the joy of community. The problem is people are messy, and when you get more than one person together, things get messy, and the more people you put together, the messier it gets. All right? Hence, dysfunctional family, etc., church splits, etc. Uh, Jesus uses an illustration here that's marvelous. Jesus said, um, relationships are so important that if you're in the synagogue and your brother has wronged you, there's something you need to do. Now, I want to set this up. 
Years ago, I was down in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I bought a book by George Washington called The Rules of Etiquette. George Washington was a smart man. And, and in The Rules of Etiquette, he had the rules for public gatherings like this, church services, etc., when you're gathered in public. Want to hear them? Uh, be on time. <laughs> Aren't you glad we preach grace here? Um, be quiet. It's reasonable. And don't leave. In other words, it's an hour. God didn't design the system that you have to go to the bathroom on demand, and you could have taken care of that early. The idea here is be hospitable to the person. Don't climb over nine people uh, just because the Phillies trained you to do that so you can buy concessions, etc. Right? These are George, this isn't me, it's George Washington. Um, but then it dawned on me, the penny drop. Because we have about seven or eight people that leave somewhere in the service every week. And I finally realized it. We are a spiritual church. We really are. We're more spiritual than I thought. These people are jumping over other people because they know somebody has something against them and they're going to make it right and then they're going to come back. I finally figured that out. Jesus said you could break all the rules of etiquette to go make something right with someone. Now, follow me on this. He tied it to a religious experience. Giving. Giving is a wonderful spiritual dynamic. It's a spiritual discipline. This beautiful thing that God has given to you and you trust God by giving to him and he gives back to you, that is necessary. We had a worship leader one time said, oh yeah, we're going to pass the offering buckets. Uh, you don't have to put money in, just put your heart in. I'm like, that's not what the Bible says. The widow put two mites in, it's all she had. You have to give with your heart. Jesus tied it to a spiritual discipline because it's so easy to let anything in our relationship with God become religious. It's far more easier to write a check than be generous with your time, to be generous with your home and your things. It's so much easier to check the box. Now Jesus said, yeah, come back and give the gift. That's required. But man, to live in harmony with people? Now, listen, I live in the same world you live in. People are crazy. Really are. Well, the Bible says as much as depends on you, you should live with peace at all men. Now, it doesn't mean when you go to make it, and this is a whole other talk, it doesn't mean when you go to make it right with someone, they will accept. I've had so many rejections. I've fallen on my sword. I've tried to patch things up. But as much as depends on me, I want to live at peace with all men. All right? See, what Jesus is arguing for here is that the law of love trumps the law. Uh, <clears throat> in business and sports, we have this saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So when we raised our kids, we raised them in a culture. We didn't have any laws about television watching. There was just limited television watching because it was our culture. It was a culture of love. And what Jesus is saying is, true citizens of the kingdom are already poor in spirit. They're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They're mourning. They're already enacting this law of love, and it's greater than any other law, because they are citizens of the kingdom of God. As much depends on us, we should live at peace with all men. 
And you see, what Jesus is talking about here is contempt. Uh, nobody wakes up and wants to murder someone. No Christian, no one born again wants to murder anyone. But what he's driving at here is contempt. Looking at people like they're irrelevant. They don't matter. Second thing Jesus says, and, and we'll really get into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount here. You have heard it said of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now I say to you, anyone looks at a woman, listen, for lustful intent commits adultery. Now, men and women are in the same boat here. Can I say something? Let's talk about looking and lusting. People are beautiful. When somebody walks in the room, you don't think I look at them, whether they're male or female? Of course I do. I remember being on one of our trips to Greece, and we were at the Parthenon, one of the most beautiful things you'll ever see. And this Italian group came in. Uh, they were probably mostly, you know, 20-somethings and some older people. And my gosh, Italian people are beautiful. And then we're wearing these, like, $100 designer pieces of art on our backs. So how could you not stare? Like, if Bradley Cooper walked in here with a really nice sports coat, you don't think I'm going to look at Bradley Cooper? <laughs> but my intent is not to be with Bradley Cooper. So I'll give you a bonus today. This will help you at work. Uh, I read this in USA Today years ago. When a woman walks into a business meeting or any meeting, what's the first thing everybody in the room looks at? Take five seconds. Tell your neighbor. Just take any guess. Five seconds. Anybody say nails? It's her nails. All the women are going. <laughs> what about when a man walks into the room? Five seconds, just share it with someone. Wedding ring. My gosh, we got, a, we got more to do than I thought. My goodness. So I used to think it was a tie, but a lot of people don't wear ties. You're never going to believe this. Shoes. I don't believe it. And you know when I, when I realized it was real? When I watch ESPN, the guys stand a lot now. They're wearing all these $2,000 suits, and the first thing I look at is their shoes. So guess what I wore today? My Uggs. These are Uggs. Uh, I have terrible shoes. Just watch me throughout the year. But this is a Father's Day present where all my kids got together. So I couldn't give this illustration without wearing Uggs today. Um, lustful intent. You know, one of the great things God has given human beings because we live in time and space is the imagination. Uh, everybody in this room can think back to some place at some time, your kitchen table, the pond on your property, maybe somewhere down the shore. You know, I look back, I could see the dinner table, every picture, I could smell smells. God gave us this because we're not eternal, and so we can be transported through time, right? Even our olfactory sense, you know, can transport us to places just by mere smells and touch, right? The dark side of imagination is fantasy, right? And what Jesus is hinting at here is you can create a whole world of adultery through fantasy, to begin to look at somebody to lust for them, to not only lust for them sexually, but think of a life with them and create this entire fantasy. Now the word love, we have one word, love, English. The Hebrews had three words, the Greeks had five. Storge was a family love, right? Like two sisters. 
Phileo, city of Philadelphia, brotherly love is like my love for a friend, not, not a relative. Then there's eros, which is like a romantic love. And then we all know God's love is agape or agape, right? The agape love of God um, is where we love something whether deserved or undeserved. Intrinsically we love. So Christ died for us when we were yet sinners, right? So Christ didn't die for us because we were doing so well. He died for us when we were undeserving, right? Um, This illustration doesn't help much, but like when your toddler's throwing food and you've had a long day, you continue to love them probably because you have to, right? You made them. But at the end of the day, there's something of value in it for you, right? Thomas Aquinas said, love is born of an earnest consideration of the object love, and it always follows knowledge. So let's bring it back to this woman or man that we're fantasizing about. I'm sure in all the fantasy in the sex industry, nobody looks at that individual like they are someone made in the image of God. Someone with a spiritual dimension, someone with dreams and desires, someone who who had a mom and a dad, maybe has their own children. See? Just like murder isn't just the act of murder, it's demeaning someone, it's the same thing with lust. You reduce person to one side of who they are. What Jesus is driving at is that for the first time as a citizen of the kingdom, because you're poor in spirit, you're mourning, you are, you've had a transformation, you're born again, you now have a choice to love and not lust. The choice is yours. Now, <laughs> his remedy is interesting. If your eye is causing you to lust, pluck it out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye missing than to go to hell with both eyes. Uh, my daughter nailed this theologically. She's a poet, by the way. She said, my hand caused me to sin, so I cut it off. Now I sin twice as much. See, what Jesus said is, uh, pluck your eye out. If you think that's the problem, go blind and see if lust goes away. And it doesn't. Why? It's in the heart. It's not in the eye. It's in your heart. That's where it is. The heart is the seed of who you are. It's not just your emotions and your inner world. It is you to the core. That's why David said, created me a clean heart, oh God. See how much easier it is to check the box? I never committed adultery. I never murdered anyone. I gave my gift at the altar. Jesus said, no, 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 no. We got to come all the way back to the heart. And by the way, the only way to get a heart is a new creation. Something the rich young ruler can never do, a poverty of spirit, beat his breast and say, God, I'm a sinner. I lied. I haven't kept all these commands. I've checked the box. Job, there's a secondary thing to this. Job said he had made a covenant with his eyes. I'm a believer in cutting things off. Some, you got to cut friends off, cut cable. There are things, the Bible says don't make any provision for the flesh. If this is a problem, cut it off. Cut things out. 
Job 31, 5 to 8, Job said he made a covenant with his eyes. A very interesting chapter because Job is a, right, right before God comes in the world when Job is trying to figure out why he's going through this calamity and he thinks maybe it's sexual purity. And he's like, yeah, but God, I made a covenant with my eyes and I've been pure with my wife. He's trying to figure out why this calamity came on him. But we see the value of sexual purity out of Job. It's a beautiful thing. Finally, you have heard it said of old, that whoever divorces his wife, verse 31, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, adultery, murder, divorce? Like, if we're going to have, like, the big three, I didn't think this would be third. Now, I'm going to pull Batman on you here. Not Christopher Nolan's Batman, the one I grew up with, Adam West. Where they bring you right to the pinnacle and they say, next time, same bat channel. Same, yeah. So you're never going to believe this, but I'm in Matthew 19 tonight at Ardmore. And I'm going to go through divorce um, at a pretty high level. So 630 Pivot Ballroom, Ardmore, if you want to get the gist of all of this. Uh, there was a book I read years ago called The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, a 25-year landmark study. They followed 131 kids from middle class in 1971 for 25 years who grew up in divorce and, and they, they are now somewhere in their late 30s or 40s and they extracted all this data. And I'll go through that tonight, uh, but here's the point I want to make. This is the Bible's definitive, definitive scripture on divorce. Holly put on the screen Malachi 2.16 where God says, and look, nobody's allowed to leave. Buckle up. I hate divorce. Now, anybody in the room who's divorced would agree. So I'll, I'll kind of lower the temperature. Anybody who's been through a divorce will agree. Any child of divorce, me, my parents were divorced both twice, will agree. Jesus said, in the beginning, God made them man and female. By the way, if you believe in theistic evolution or evolution of every kind, you got a problem with Jesus because he didn't. In the beginning, Jesus believed there was a beginning long before Einstein. God made them. He made Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve out of the rib. He made them. They didn't evolve. It's a whole other talk. And what God has joined together, let man know pull, pull asunder. Uh, even the, the metaphor of divorce, like a ball player and a team, they had a divorce. It, it, we all know it's a bad term. There's a ripping, right? And when you rip, uh, it's not good, right? Now, the question here was, can a man divorce his wife for any cause, right? Uh, Jesus said here, you have heard of old, you can give a certificate of divorce. See, again, this was a check the box. Well, I divorced my wife. You know, she didn't cook well. She didn't clean well, whatever. It was a man-dominated world. Malachi doesn't say God hates divorced people. It doesn't say divorce is the unpardonable sin, right? God, God's grace covers everything. But Jesus knew divorce ripped against the holistic fabric of life and community. I saw a list one time of the top 10 worst things that can happen to anyone in America, and divorce was number four. And I've lived through it. It follows you the rest of your life. Every holiday, every gathering, it just lingers there. 
And those who have been through it know what it's about. Proverbs 2.16, Malachi 2.14 talk about how a wife or a spouse is a companion by covenant. Now, there was a contract. There was a covenant between God and the person. It was a lifelong companion. So Moses comes along and put guardrails on this. Moses said, look, because of the hardness of your hearts, he gave a bill of divorce. Now, they ran wild with this. Jesus said, look, you need to understand this. This was because of the hardness of your heart. But from the beginning, this was not God's intention. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of a glimpse into the true kingdom. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy and look at all the laws, and if those laws were lived out and they couldn't be, and if the Sermon on the Mount was lived out and it couldn't be, we would have a world of no lack. There'd be no poor, no devastation. It's amazing. I mean, the law was beautiful. See, Jesus isn't condemning divorced people. He's upholding the standard of marriage. And when I marry people, I talk about the genius of marriage. Where marriage is a place where, where everybody wins. No one person gets their way, but everybody wins. The husband doesn't get his way. The wife doesn't get her way. The kids don't get their way but everybody wins. And you look at every other system, whether it's polygamy or having a harem or a sheik, look at any other system in the world, and there's a loser in every other system but the one God came up with. The law of love, again, covers law. I've never been divorced. I never committed adultery. I never murdered anyone. Jesus said, yeah, but what's in your heart? One day Jesus was asked, what's the totality of the whole entire Old Testament? He said two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. James says, it's easy to say you love God who you can't see, but if you don't love your neighbor who you can see, how can you say you love God who you can't see? Like they're kind of intertwined. The love of God should come out for others. Guys, it's always been about love. Because the same Jesus who had these hard sayings, and they really weren't hard at all, because guess what? Like I said, everybody knew they couldn't keep it. That's why the prophets talked about a day when God would take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. See, we needed heart transplant. Religion tries to give you stints. They try and unclog things. Self-help is stints. God said, no, transplant. I'll give you a new heart. Now, doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you still won't lust or those things. But we have an advocate with the Father, and we can pray, and God forgives us, and we get back on our horse again. See? The rich young ruler needed a new heart. That was the diagnosis. His heart was filled with material things. And God said, I want to replace that and give you a love for people. That's what you need, and you will enter in the life. Because at the end of the day, God owns the cattle on a thousand hill, and he could care less. What he cares about is you and me. People who are made in his image. That's what he cares about. Gold will be so insignificant, 
Heaven will be paved with it. It'll be good just to walk on. That's about it. Because at the end of the day, it's people. And this is what was liberating to the crowd. That the entrance into this kingdom of love and grace and my gosh, this wonderful, beautiful thing is not by works that you have done, but by a poverty of spirit that God, I can't do it on my own. When we sang the Apostles' Creed, it said, I believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ His Son, the Holy Spirit. I believe in eternal life. I believe in the resurrection. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in those things, this is the best place in the world to be. Because we can introduce you to a wonderful Savior. We can introduce you to a God who will give you a heart transplant. We can introduce you to a way of life that is it's not easy. We lose the ones we love. We, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. But we now in the here and now have this taste of eternal life. John said that we who came to Christ would have abundant life, that, that, that you might know Jesus Christ who the Father has sent and have eternal life. I'm not getting eternal life when I get to heaven. I already have it. First Corinthians says that I have a down payment, the Spirit of God who has sealed me. I can hear his voice. I can see things. I look, I look through a glass dimly just like all of you. But man, I know it's here. It's a glorious thing.